Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We bring best-selling and award-winning writers of every genre to Twin Cities metro area libraries to share their stories, discuss their work, and answer those burning questions you've always wanted to ask your favorite authors. This is a book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although, we hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. Club Book is made possible by Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund, MELSA, and Library Strategies. We would like to thank our media sponsors at Minnesota Public Radio and MinPost.com for helping us get the word out about our great guest authors. This podcast features Karen Abbott at Ramsey County's Roseville Public Library. Karen Abbott is a New York Times bestselling historian and a pioneer of what USA Today calls sizzle history. Her hits to date include Sin in the Second City, 2008, and American Rose, 2012. Publishers Weekly praises Abbott's latest title, Liar, Temptress, Soldier, Spy, as a gripping, remarkable story of passion, strength, and resilience. It brings to light stories and contributions of four daring female spies from the Civil War. Amazon, Library Journal, and the Christian Science Monitor are among those who singled out Liar, Temptress, Soldier, Spy as one of the best books of 2014. Sony recently optioned it for a miniseries. In addition to her book-length work, Abbott is a regular contributor to Smithsonian and the New York Times. Abbott makes use of slides in this discussion. If you're interested, you can find these online at clubbook.org slash podcasts. And now, Karen Abbott. Thank you to Common Good Books for being here. Thanks to the library for having me. And finally, thanks to all of you uh, for coming out tonight on this cold night. Um, it's a great welcome. I've never been to Minnesota before. And I had no idea that Target was based here, which was exciting to me because there's no Target where, near where I live. So I think I would <laughs> indulge my Target addiction and then check myself into Hazelden, and that would be, <laughs> that would be it. Um, but anyway, just to tell you a little bit about myself, I, um, I write historical narrative nonfiction. Um, my Two previous books mainly dealt with uh, prostitutes and strippers, um, which, as you can see, I'm clearly putting my 16 years of rigorous Catholic schooling to good use. <laughs> um, today, I'm going to talk about my latest, uh, uh, Liar, Temptress, Soldier, Spy, which is the story of four, really five, uh, female Civil War spies. Um, and I usually start by talking a little bit about how I got into this book. Um, I was born and raised in Philadelphia, but I moved to Atlanta, Georgia for about six years, um, and it was quite a culture shock. Uh, I don't know if anybody here spent time in the Deep South, but you know you have to get used to the occasional Confederate flags on the lawn, uh, the jokes about the War of Northern Aggression, um, and just the idea that the Civil War seeps into daily life and conversation down South in a way it never does up North or in the Midwest. 
Um, and this point was really driven home for me one day when I was stuck in traffic on Route 400, which is like Atlanta's seventh circle of thoroughfare hell, um, for two hours uh, behind a pickup truck with a bumper sticker that read, don't blame me, I voted for Jefferson Davis, uh, <laughs> who of course was the president of the Confederacy. And I sat behind this thing for two hours and therefore had quite a bit of time to really start thinking about the Civil War. And my mind always goes to, well, what were the women doing? Um, and not just any women, what were the, the bad women doing? What were the defiant women doing? Um, and some women, of course, did things like uh, darn socks and sew uniforms for the soldiers. Some women um, held bazaars to raise money for supplies. And some women took it a step further than that. Um, they became informal recruiting officers who would shame any man who shirked his duty to fight. And there were several cartoons that depicted this. Here's one of them. Um, all of these women would dress up in military garb in these cartoons and sort of loom over their cowering boyfriends, basically saying either you enlist or I enlist, or some of the other ones, the really emasculating ones were, um, if, you're, if you don't volunteer, you might as well wear my crinoline, you know, that, that kind of thing. Um, the men always ended up volunteering after these. Um, but I wanted to find four women who went further than that. Um, I wanted to find women who lied, seduced, wheedled, plundered, spied, drank, avenged, stole, and murdered their way through the war. And I think I, I succeeded in finding them. Um, and my goal with this book was to uh, weave a tapestry of these women's stories and hopefully tell the story of the Civil War in a way it hadn't been told before through the perspectives of the women. Uh, so I hope if you read the book that you, um, you think that it accomplishes that, but we'll discuss that later. Um, right now, I just want to introduce you some of my favorite personalities and events from uh, the Civil War. So without further ado, this is my first uh, female spy. This is Belle Boyd. Um, she was a 17-year-old girl living in the Shenandoah Valley, Virginia, when the war broke out. And Belle was fascinating to me because she was all id. She had absolutely no filter, especially when it came to herself. Uh, just to give you an idea of Belle's um, personality, I'm going to read a very brief snippet of a letter she wrote to her cousin, uh, maybe a year before the war broke out, in which she's trying to lobby him to find her a husband. All right, here. I am tall, Belle wrote. I weigh 106 and a half pounds. My form is beautiful. My eyes are of a dark blue and so expressive. My hair of a rich brown, and I think I tie it up nicely. My neck and arms are beautiful, and my foot is perfect. <laughs> Only wear size two and a half shoes. My teeth the same pearly whiteness, I think perhaps a little whiter. Nose quite as large as ever, neither Grecian nor Roman, but beautifully shaped. And indeed, I am decidedly the most beautiful of all of your cousins. Um, so Belle clearly had no problems with self-esteem. Uh, and she kicks things off in July of 1861. Um, Union forces had just won a small skirmish in the Shenandoah Valley, and they're marching up the valley, and they're planning on a 4th of July victory parade in Bell's hometown of Martinsburg, Virginia. Uh, today it's Martinburg, Martinsburg, West Virginia, but back then it was still Martinsburg, Virginia. And they arrive in Martinsburg, and the Union soldiers begin looting stores and breaking into homes and stealing liquor and ransacking private property and basically causing havoc in this small town. Um, and Belle is waiting at her own home uh, for these men to arrive on her doorstep, and she's waiting for them with a pistol by her side. So sure enough, when these Union soldiers arrive at Belle's home, uh, one of them threatens to raise a federal flag over the home. And Belle, being the cool, common, collected sort that she is, uh, shoots this fellow dead. 
um, she shoots him dead and she gets away with it. And she's very emboldened by the fact that she gets away with it. And she decides that she's going to use her connections to the Confederate Army. She had many family, friends, and relatives in the Confederate Army, including her own father. She wants to use these connections to secure herself a place in the Confederate Army because, of course, the Confederate Army has no chance without her services. You know, they need her. So here's another image of Belle in which she's taking herself very seriously in her Confederate garb. Um, you can tell that, you know, she, she knows exactly how important she is. Um, and she begins doing some work, uh, you know, occasional spying, delivering messages. And her specialty, as it was with many of these spies, uh, was seducing. Um, and she did not discriminate. She seduced uh, Union and Confederate men alike. Um, she reportedly uh, was closeted for four hours with a Union general named James Shields and subsequently wrapped a rebel flag around his head to celebrate this conquest. Um, one of her other reported paramours, um, and this is why I love nonfiction, these are things you just cannot make up. One of her other reported paramours was a man by the name of Major Dick Long. Um, <laughs> I, I always feel like a 12-year-old boy uh, saying that, but I mean, how could, how could I resist? Um, so Belle was incredibly overt with both her opinions and her sexuality, which was very rare for a 17-year-old girl during this time period. Um, I like to say that if Sarah Palin and Miley Cyrus had a 19th century baby, um, it would have been Belle Boyd. Um, you know, men loved Belle Boyd. Of course, they, they found her fascinating and, and quite, uh, I guess, inviting. Uh, but women did not like Belle Boyd. They had several derogatory nicknames for her. One of them was the fastest girl in Virginia, or anywhere else for that matter. Um, but Belle uh, was, uh, you know, undeterred and went on to have some many interesting adventures during the war and we'll get into a few of those as, as we go on. This is my second spy. This is Private Frank Thompson um, who comes into the war with a bit of a secret. Uh, Private Frank Thompson was actually a woman named Emma Edmonds and had been living as a man for two years. And she, Emma, had a very interesting childhood. Um, she was born and raised in Canada and she was the daughter of a very stern um, disciplinarian um, a farmer um, who had married all of her older sisters off into arranged marriages um, when they were fairly young. And her father had select selected a similar spouse for Emma. There was an elderly farmer waiting for Emma's hand in marriage. Um, Emma was only 17 years old at the time, and she did not want this. She was an adventurous sort. She did not want to be tied down like that. And she decided that the only way she was going to escape a man was to become one herself. So one day, uh, when she was about 17 years old, she cuts her hair, she binds her breasts, she trades in her women's dress for a man's suit, and she begins living as Frank Thompson. And she migrates to the United States, uh, where she works as an itinerant Bible salesman, and she begins hearing about uh, the abolitionist John Brown and the drumbeat of events leading up to the Civil War, and decides she wants a piece of that action. Uh, it sounds very exciting to her. So she, in the spring of 1861, she finds herself in Detroit, Michigan, and decides to enlist there. Now you might ask, well, how did she pass the physical examination in order to be admitted into the Union Army? Uh, interesting question. Uh, early, even early on, both sides uh, were desperate for bodies. Um, they had quotas to fill, they needed to get men out there as quickly as possible. So they really only cared if you had fingers to pull a trigger, if you had enough teeth to rip off powder cartridges, and if you had the feet to march, that was pretty much it. So she passed the physical exam handily, 
Um, but then the second part of that equation is, well, how did she fool her comrades? You know, she's in very close quarters with these men. They're marching next to each other for hours every day. There's not much privacy. Um, and so how did she get away with that? Um, and the research was fascinating with this. Um, it's estimated that about 400 women for both North and South disguised themselves as men and either enlisted in the Union or Confederate armies. Um, and, I, uh, and, and I wanted to figure out how did they get away with this? Not all of them got away with it, mind you, but how did a lot of them get away with it? And I came to the conclusion that it was mostly because nobody had any idea what a woman would look like wearing pants. You know, people were so used to seeing women's bodies pushed and pulled in these exaggerated shapes with corsets and crinolines um, that the very idea of a woman in pants, let alone an entire army uniform, was so unfathomable that you couldn't even see it if it were in front of your face. Um, so Emma used that to her great advantage. Um, and she had, was facing danger on two fronts. Uh, she was on the front lines of a lot of the battles. She was a nurse on the field. She was a courier. Um, and she was in the thick of a lot of the, the deadliest battles between the two sides. Um, so she had that worry, but she also, in the back of her mind, was constantly fearing that her sex might be discovered. Um, if it were discovered, she could be arrested, she could be charged with prostitution, and she could be kicked out of the Union Army, um, which to Emma would have been the worst fate of all. She really wanted to stay for that adventure. But things were going pretty smoothly for Emma until she rather unexpectedly fell in love with a fellow Union soldier, this rather dashing gentleman by the name of Jerome Robbins, um, who was also a member of the 2nd Michigan. And one of the great uh, pleasures of researching this book was finding Jerome Robbins' diary at the University of Michigan, in which he includes several entries about his friend Frank Thompson. And it says things like, there's something funny about my friend, Frank Thompson. I can't quite put my finger on it, you know, but a, a mystery seems to be connected to him. So, uh, you know, at some point, Emma is going to have to decide, do I keep my uh, secret, a secret to myself, or do I tell Jerome who and what I really am and let the chips fall where they may? So uh, following their love story was sort of uh, one of my favorite uh, passages through the book. This is my third spy. This is Rose O'Neill Greenhow, uh, pictured here with her eight-year-old daughter, little Rose. Um, Rose was a Confederate sympathizer living in the federal capital of Washington, D.C. And her whole life had fallen apart in the years leading up to the war. She had lost five children in four years, if you can imagine that. She had lost her husband in a freak accident. And she had lost her access to the White House. Um, this is somebody who had been friends with high-ranking Democratic politicians for years leading up to the war. Um, he even had been a close advisor and confidant um, to former President James Buchanan. And she lost all of that um, as soon as Lincoln and the Republicans came into power. And I think she was really desperate to um, get any vestige of her old life back. So in the spring of 1861, uh, when a Confederate captain approached Rose and asked her to run a, uh, a rebel spy ring in the uh, Washington, D.C., she jumped at the chance. And she begins cultivating sources. Uh, by cultivating, I mean seducing. Um, many uh, Union men especially. One of her most important sources uh, was this man. Uh, this is Senator Henry Wilson of Massachusetts who was not only an abolitionist Republican, uh, but he was also Lincoln's chairman of the Committee on Military Affairs. <laughs> um, and uh, I went to the National Archives on, and unearthed uh, several sort of titillating letters between these two. Um, here's a tiny excerpt of one of them. You know that I do love you. I am suffering this morning. 
In fact, I am sick physically and mentally and know nothing that would soothe me so much as an hour with you. So that was Senator Two Rose. Uh, so you can imagine they had some very lucrative pillow talk uh, that Rose used to her great advantage. This is Rose Greenhouse Cipher, uh, another find at the National Archives. Um, and it was something that she took very seriously. This was go going to be her primary way. She communicated to her Confederate scouts, as she called them, um, you know, sending dispatches in this code so that if it fell into Union hands, they wouldn't immediately know what, what it said. Um, it's sort of similar to the cipher used in Edgar Allan Poe's short story, The Gold Bug, if anybody's familiar with that. Um, if you look down at the lower left, you can see Lincoln and his symbol. It's, a, it's an inverted triangle bisected by a slash. Now, Rose had two nicknames for Lincoln. One was Beanpole and the other was Satan. <laughs> Just to give you an idea of the animosity she had for the president. Um, but there were times when Rose didn't have time to, uh, to encrypt a dispatch. She, this, it was time consuming. Sometimes she just couldn't do it. So if she had to communicate something, uh, she had other methods also. Um, at a certain appointed hour, uh, uh, one of her scouts might be looking at her window on, on Washington. She lived in Lafayette Square in Washington, D.C. And she had memorized the Morse code. And she would raise and lower her blinds according to the dots and dashes of the Morse code. Um, and if she were on the street, she could achieve the very same effect by precisely fluttering her fan, according to the dots and dashes of the Morse code. Uh, so rather ingenious spycraft on, on Rose's part. Here um, is another, I know I keep saying this, but there were so many great finds in the National Archives. Um, but to give you some background of, of this piece, uh, you know, the Lincoln and the North were certain that the war was going to be over quickly. It was going to be over in 90 days. The plan was to meet the Confederates at Manassas, Virginia, win handily there, march on to Richmond, and capture Richmond, and the war would be over. 90 days, easy. Um, well, of course, Rose Greenhow and the Confederates had other ideas. And in the weeks leading up to the first Battle of Bull Run in uh, July of 1861, Rose, having gathered all of her uh, intelligence from her high-ranking Union paramours, um, encrypted a dispatch, and she summoned a 16-year-old girl to her home. Uh, this girl was named Betty Duvall. And she sat Betty Duvall down at her vanity. She wrapped her encrypted dispatch up in that piece of black silk, and then coiled the piece of black silk up into Betty Duvall's hair and gave her very careful instructions. She was to go across the bridge and head over to P uh, General PGT Beauregard's headquarters um, and you know, wave at the Union sentries. They're just gonna think that she's a simple farm girl on her way from the market. They won't be suspicious. She just smiles pretty and they'll let her go on. And so Betty did exactly that. She waves at the Union sentries. She gets across. She heads, uh, gets to C Confederate General Beauregard's headquarters. She undoes her hair in dramatic, romantic fashion and produces this note, which basically um, uh, confirms some information about Union troop numbers and placements um, at the first Battle of Bull Run um, that was going to allow the Confederates to, to be prepared to meet them. Um, and uh, this was just a thrilling moment at the archives uh, to be able to hold that scrap of black silk in my hand and know that you know, 150 years earlier, Rose Greenhow had held it in her hand. I was sort of waiting to get, <laughs> waiting to get chastised by the, the uh, National Archive guards because I was like, you know, smell, <laughs> smelling the history. Um, anyway. <laughs> 
So this um, is, it was one of my favorite anecdotes I read about. Um, as everybody here probably knows, the first battle of Bull Run did not go as the Union hoped it would. It was a disastrous and bloody defeat for the Union, and it basically allowed the Confederates to stay fighting and stay viable, um, mostly because of Rose Greenhouse interaction there. Um, and this photograph was taken not during the Civil War. Uh, if anybody's familiar with period dress, you could see that this is about in the 1890s. It's about 30 years later. Um, but, but these people were, were reenacting something that happened at the Battle of Bull Run in 1861. On that day, uh, many Union support, supporters from Washington, D.C. and the surrounding areas decided to pack up their kids, pack up a picnic basket, some champagne, get in their carriage and drive on out to the battlefield. Just have a lovely day picnicking and watching the, watching the war take place. Um, <laughs> very, very quickly, they realized what a bad idea that was. It turned very bloody and very ugly in short order. Many of these people were captured. Some of them were sent on to prisons in Richmond. Some of them drowned in Bull Run Creek trying to get away. You know, they left their parasols and the broken bottles. It was mayhem trying to get out of there. Um, but I just love the fact that 30 years later, it was such an event that was ingrained in the consciousness of the people that they, they decided to reenact that. This is my fourth spy. This is Elizabeth Van Lu who was pretty much the exact opposite of Rose O'Neill Greenhow. Um, whereas Rose was this uh, raving beauty, everybody always talked about Rose's great beauty. Elizabeth, according to one of her neighbors, was, quote, never as pretty as her portrait showed. <laughs> it's like, rear. <laughs> um, but, and, and whereas Rose was very outspoken and brazen, Elizabeth was quiet and cautious and discreetly cunning. And she, um, on, you know, again, opposite of Rose, was a Union spy in the Confederate capital of Richmond. Uh, so their positions were exactly uh, juxtaposed as well. And she had a very interesting background. Um, she was born and raised in Richmond, but uh, was sent up north to Philadelphia for schooling. And while she was in Philadelphia, she came under care of an abolitionist governess. And when she returned to Richmond, she brought those ideals back with her. And her, as soon as her father died, she freed all of the family slaves, she began spending her vast inheritance buying slaves just for the express purpose of freeing them. Um, she was considered a sort of oddity, you know, this, this spinster. She was in her 40s. She had never married. She lived alone with her mother in this grand mansion in Churchill, which was Richmond's wealthiest neighborhood. And everybody just thought she was just sort of an odd bird, but harmless, you know, strange. But after the war broke out, it was incredibly dangerous for Elizabeth's abolitionist and northern sympathizing views to be known. Um, people were immediately suspicious of her. Confederate detectives followed her wherever she went. Um, she received death threats on a constant basis. Uh, but nevertheless, she went through with her plans to organize a Union spy ring in the Confederate capital of Richmond. And she began recruiting people from all walks of life to do this. Um, one of them was her own brother. This is John Van Lu. Um, and I had the great pleasure of speaking with one of his descendants. Uh, John Van Lu had two daughters, and I spoke with the great-grandson of one of these daughters, um, who told me some fascinating information about uh, Elizabeth's incredible spy ring that had never been published before. Um, just to give you a, a little taste of that, uh, the Van Lu's owned a very prominent hardware business, uh, had many prestigious clients. And John Van Lu decided that he was going to start using the paperwork, you know, the blank business orders, the purchase orders, the, the, his paperwork for his hardware business in his spying operation. 
um, he would fill out this paperwork as if it was normal business transaction, but every number he wrote down corresponded with a certain military terminology. Uh, for example, 370 iron hinges might mean 3,700 cavalry, 30 anvils might mean 30 batteries of artillery, and so on. Um, so it was, it was a pretty smart way to go about that. Um, and to make matters more dangerous, though, John Van Loo was married to an ardent con Confederate sympathizer, and they were all living under the same house, John, his wife, and Elizabeth. Um, so at any moment, this woman, his wife, would not have hesitated to turn in her own husband and her own sister-in-law if she suspected them of treasonous activity. But I think Elizabeth's greatest coup as a uh, Union spymaster was placing a former family slave in the Confederate White House as a spy. Um, this is Verena Davis, Jefferson Davis's wife, the first lady of the Confederacy. And late in 1861, she put out a call that she needed help. She needed staff for her home. And Elizabeth decided to pay her a social visit. And she said, I heard you need some help. I have a girl for you. She's not very bright and she stumbles in the kitchen, but she's loyal and she'll serve your family well. And she sends over a woman by the name of Mary Jane Bowser. Now, Mary Jane Bowser had been born in the Van Loo family as a slave and was freed when she was about four years old. And Elizabeth really took her under her wing and considered her more like a daughter. Um, and little did anybody know that Mary Jane Bowser was not only literate, but highly educated and gifted with a photographic memory. So while she's, uh, Mary Jane is dusting Jefferson Davis's desk and cleaning up the children's toys in the nursery, She's also glimpsing um, his confidential papers and eavesdropping on his conversations and reporting all of it back to Elizabeth. Um, so a very important source for Elizabeth to have um, and would only grow more important as the war went on. Now this gentleman probably needs no introduction. Uh, this is Confederate General Stonewall Jackson, uh, one of my favorite characters of the Civil War because um, he was like certifiably insane. Um, <laughs> And uh, he was also like the rock star of the Civil War. Uh, there was a great story about him in the spring of 1862, uh, right before he embarked on his famous Valley campaign. He was in a hotel lobby in the Shenandoah Valley, and he's spotted by a group of women. And they just run over to him and start swarming him and tearing at his hair and ripping buttons off his coat and just grabbing at him. And Stonewall takes a step back and says, Ladies, ladies, this is the very first time I've been surrounded by the enemy. <laughs> Pretty good line. Um, probably needless to say, Belle Boyd, our crazy 17-year-old spy in the Shenandoah Valley, was obsessed with Stonewall Jackson. In fact, she told reporters that she wanted to, quote, occupy his tent and share his dangers. Um, which, if I were Stonewall Jackson, I think would have frightened me more than anything the Union Army had in store. I, I wouldn't want Belle Boyd anywhere near my tent. Um, but she's determined to make him notice her, which makes for some very interesting activity uh, during the spring of 1862 in particular. Oh, here's another general that probably needs no introduction. This is General George McClellan of the Union. And he was sort of, at least for a while, uh, the rock star of the North. He was Stonewall's answer, you know, the Stonewall's counterpart in the North. Um, he was brought on to whip the army into shape after the disastrous defeat at Bull Run. He had to bring back morale, and he basically had to take a bunch of these green recruits, you know, some of whom have never shot a gun, and teach them how to be soldiers. Uh, now, McClellan was interesting in his own right. Um, he was a complete egomaniac. 
He would tell people that he could uh, bend a quarter between his thumb and forefinger, and he could lift a 250-pound man over his head, just like this. And he would insist that God himself had sent McClellan to save the Union. It was all God's will that McClellan was even there. Um, and uh, it was, he was good at whipping the army into shape, but he had one sort of tragic and fatal flaw. He was afraid to fight. He did not want to send his men into battle. Um, he was constantly overestimating the Confederate troop numbers and badgering Lincoln for more troops. Now, of course, McClellan's men loved him for this. You know, he, they're not sending him, he's not sending them to be killed. Um, Emma Edmonds, AKA Private Frank Thompson, is one of McClellan's men and she adores him also. But as you can imagine, Lincoln and the other Northern officials are, get quite frustrated with him. They, they want a swift response to Bull Run. They want the Confederates to know that they're going to retaliate. And McClellan was just not interested in engaging. Um, in fact, he called Lincoln nothing more than a well-meaning baboon. Um, and their animosity toward each other only would get uh, grow as the war went on. Now, this is one of my favorite uh, cartoons from the Civil War, and, and there were many. Um, and just to give you some background of this, uh, one of the Union's main strategies against the South was to enact a, a, a blockade along 3,500 miles of Confederate coastline. Now, it would basically starve the South of food, weapons, medicine, clothing, material, you know, things that the Southern Army not only needed to fight, but things that the Southern civilians needed to live. And this blockade had immediate and dire effects upon the South. Um, people started starving, inflation was out of control. It was, it was, uh, it was working. Um, and this cartoon, uh, but, but in, its, in response to the blockade, an equally effective smuggling operation sprung up, and it was mostly conducted by Confederate women. Um, and this cartoon celebrates Confederate women's ability to smuggle. Um, it's called crinoline and quinine. Um, and if you, you can probably guess from the image, women liked to use their clothes to smuggle things, especially the crinoline, which was this rigid cage-like structure that, that at its apex could reach a diameter of six feet, six feet. Um, so you can imagine all sorts of things one might tie to a crinoline. Uh, just to give you one of my favorite statistics about this, um, one woman managed to conceal inside her hoop skirt a roll of army cloth, several pairs of cavalry boots, a roll of crimson flannel, packages of gilt braid and sewing silk, cans of preserved meats, and a bag of coffee. That was the contraband tally for a single crossing. Um, Belle Boyd, our Shenandoah Valley spy, was the queen of inland blockade. Um, and she really, uh, I guess, excelled at um, smuggling weaponry. She would go to Union camps at night, gather up all the unattended weapons, tie them around her person, and get them to southern lines. And she recruited a bunch of other Southern women to join her in this enterprise. They were a well-honed a well army in their own right. Um, and one morning in the fall of 1861, the 28th Pennsylvania awoke to discover that 200 sabers, 400 pistols, cavalry equipment for 200 men, and 1,400 muskets were missing. <laughs> um, all because of Belle Boyd and her, and her cohorts uh, transferring their weapons to the Southern lines. Now, to me, this was a fascinating part of women's roles in the Civil War. You know, they were able to take society's constructs about womanhood and perceived weaknesses and really exploit them to their own advantage. And they used their gender as both a physical and psychological disguise. 
you know, physically they're hiding things up in their hair and on their hoop skirts. Um, but psychologically, anytime one of these women were challenged um, or accused of treason, the standard response was, how dare you? How dare you suggest I am capable of such a thing? I am a defenseless lady. Um, and the, of course the accusers would be, oh, I'm so sorry, ma'am, of course you are right. Uh, things that women would never get away with today, of course, but, um, but back then it worked quite brilliantly and, um, and something that uh, they, they knew would work brilliantly. And it took quite a while for the men to catch on. Now this um, is a little uh, something I found in the Museum of Con the Confederacy in Richmond, Virginia. This is a doll named Lucy Ann. And um, during the Civil War, she was one of the most popular toys for mothers to buy their little girls. Um, and the reason for that is because Lucy Ann has a paper mache head that could be filled with quinine, <laughs> which was a medicine that was vital to combating malaria, which of course was something that plagued the troops constantly, the disease. Um, and the mothers would fill the heads with quinine, give the dolls to their daughters, and tell them to walk across the lines, just you know, holding the dolls. And the, the centuries would never have any idea that these innocent little girls and their innocent little dolls were carrying supplies for the, for the enemy. Um, and it also illustrates to me how willing, especially the Southern women, were to use their daughters in their spying activities. Um, Rose Greenhow was a prime example of this. She would uh, tuck uh, dispatches in her eight-year-old daughter's little pantalettes and send her over to the generals, and they would take the notes out and give her candy. Um, and it, I, to me, it was just a sign that they, they really and truly believed that um, it was worth risking not only their own lives, but the lives of their daughters for their cause um, and that they really thought that they were going to be in less danger, you know, taking these risks than if they just laid back and let the North won and let the North take over the South again. Um, so it was something I think that arose from some very deeply held convictions about what would happen if the North won. Now this, <laughs> um, I am going to tell you the story as it was told to me. Uh, I hope nobody's just eaten dinner. Um, <laughs> But this is also uh, at the Museum of the Confederacy in Richmond. And I'll tell you the story as, as it was told to me by the curator at the Museum of the Confederacy. She said that a couple years earlier, this woman came in with this object and she said that her ancestor had been a Confederate spy and had used this in his spying. And what he would do was uh, take little dispatches and roll them up into tiny scrolls, put them in this contraption, and then hide this contraption in the place that was least likely to be searched. Um, the curator at the Museum of the Confederacy calls this the anal acorn. Oh. Um, and I should, I should clarify, I really wish I had a ruler um, to, to indicate how big it was, because it was really not that big. Like, <laughs> what you see is not what you get here. Um, you know, it's, it was a, it's a little thing. Um, but still, uh, I have no idea how many Confederate soldiers were subjected to the anal acorn. Um, and I, but I do know that this was not in my history books in high school. So I was, I was damn sure putting it in my history book. Oh, here's another um, interesting cartoon uh, from, uh, from the Civil War. Um, and this goes back to the blockade, uh, just to give you some context. By 1864, the blockade was so effective in the South and was producing such dire circumstances that people were literally starving. Um, by 1864, one pound of bacon in the South cost $20. That's $300 in today's money for a pound of bacon. Um, so people were literally starving. Uh, they could not afford to buy food. 
Um, and cartoons started springing up that that just started venting Southerners frustration with the situation with the blockade. And it's full of rather gruesome items that they wish they could be smuggling across the blockade. Um, you have here a uh, goblet made from a Yankee skull. <laughs> you have a necklace made of Yankee teeth um, and paperweight made of Yankee jawbones and other similarly macabre items um, that, that they all, you know, wishful thinking. They wish they could be smuggling them across the lines. Uh, so most of this was a, a figment of the Southerner's imagination, a revenge oh. fantasy. But there are, were reports of Southern women wearing jewelry and brooches uh, made of uh, dead Yankee bones, um, Yankee soldiers' bones, and, and they wore them proudly. And it was sort of a, a burgeoning underground jewelry enterprise in the South. Um, so it, there's at least a little bit of truth to that. Now this is Alan Pinkerton, the famous detective Alan Pinkerton, uh, pictured here with Abraham Lincoln. And I've always been fascinated with the Pinkertons, um, so I was really delighted uh, to find out that he played a huge part in the Civil War. Now Alan Pinkerton was hired early on in the Civil War by the Union to uh, do two things. Number one, he was supposed to uh, discern Confederate troop numbers and figure out how, you know, what was the manpower the Union was facing. And Alan Pinkerton was terrible at finding out how many, how many uh, troops the Union was facing. He was just as bad as McClellan. Together, they overinflated the numbers constantly, um, and it was a disaster. But the second thing that he was charged with doing was ferreting out Confederate spies. And on this front, Pinkerton was actually quite talented. One of his very first missions during the Civil War was to uh, conduct a stakeout on suspected spy Rose Greenhow. Um, because he had heard that she had a hand in the disastrous defeat at Bull Run, and he wanted to find out if that was true, if, if Rose Greenhow was running a Confederate spy ring. Um, so in one of my favorite scenes in the book, it's August of 1861, Pinkerton and two of his best detectives take a stroll over to Lafayette Square and where Rose's house was. By the way, Rose always used to say that her house was within rifle range of Lincoln's White House. Um, yeah, <laughs> and, uh, and so they, they arrive at Rose's home in Lafayette Square. Pinkerton has to stand on his two detective's shoulders just to get a peek into Rose's parlor. Um, and he peeks in there, and what does he see? But Rose O'Neill Greenhouse sitting down with a man that Pinkerton recognizes as a union captain. And he takes a closer look, and he sees that there's uh, official-looking paperwork and some maps and fortification uh, spreads out on the table. And Pinkerton realizes that, that this is a traitorous Union captain, and he's furious. So he watches for a few more moments, and what does he see? But Rose Greenhow and this traitor union, traitorous Union captain begin passionately kissing. Um, and then Pinkerton just loses his mind. Um, and he declares Rose public enemy number one and decides that he is going to be the one to stop her. And it starts a rather fascinating game of cat and mouse between Pinkerton, Rose, and, and some of the other men that started pursuing her. Um, and this was another, uh, to me, fascinating uh, aspect of women's roles in the Civil War. You know, the, the idea of female traitors was something that these men had never even considered. Women were supposed to be loyal. Uh, loyal was an attribute of femininity itself. Um, so the idea that, um, that they, they had to come around to eventually was that women were not only capable of treasonous activity, but they were capable of executing it more deftly than men. Um, and it was a hard thing for them to sort of grapple with 
And there was a great quote I read where one of Lincoln's officials, and you could just hear the confusion and angst in his voice when he said, what are we going to do with these fashionable female spies? <laughs> um, and it was something that they had to consider for the rest of the war. Um, you know, if they were too lenient on them, they risked, uh, um, you know, more disastrous defeats, more treachery, more um, spying that would hurt the Union. And if they were too hard on them, they risked looking like, uh, you know, making these women martyrs, um, which was not going to serve their cause either. So it was a delicate dance that they had to, uh, to conduct and um, not always very easy. Now this is my final slide um, and one of my favorite characters from the Civil War. This is a fellow by the name of Benjamin Franklin Stringfellow. He was a, a spy for Confederate General Jeb Stewart. And he had a rather unorthodox way of spying. Well, first of all, he was very good looking. I don't know if you could tell from the picture. But he had blonde hair, blue eyes. He weighed 94 pounds. And according to his comrades, he had a waist as wispy as a woman's. So he had a rather unorthodox approach to his spying. He would find out when the Union and where the Union was holding their military balls. And he would dress up in his grandest finery, the most elaborate ball gown he could find. And he would go to the ball and introduce himself as Sally Martin. Now, everybody wanted to dance with Sally Martin. She was the prettiest little gal at the dance. And uh, while he was dancing with his union partners, he was pumping them for information about what the union was up to, what General Grant was doing, what were they planning next. And the men just loved to talk to Sally Martin. She was so charming and so cute with her interest in the war. Um, and of course, he would report all of this back to Confederate General Jeb Stewart. Um, and it was really an effective spy for the South. And I just like to include him because it just goes to show uh, that the women weren't the only ones cross-dressing during the war. Uh, <laughs> the men were in on that action too. With that, we have reached the part of our podcast where we turn to our club book audience for questions and comments for Karen Abbott and her work. In this book club, we like to encourage members and authors to connect and engage and help bridge the gap between the page you read and the process it took to write it. Our first question of the night comes from an audience member wondering what the research process was like for Karen Abbott's book, Liar, Temptress, Soldier, Spy. You know, I had to start pretty much from scratch because I, I, I read about the Civil War in school and then never really thought about it again until I moved to Atlanta. So, um, you know, starting off with just refamiliarizing myself with the generals and who won which battles and that sort of thing. But then you get to the fun parts and you start hitting the archives. Um, and fortunately, one of the reasons I picked these four women, there were many reasons, but one of them, primary one, was that they had primary source material. These are women who wrote memoirs, who wrote diaries, who gave interviews, um, especially Belle Boyd. She was quite a little media, not a very good spy, but a great media whore. Um, and uh, there was, there, I could get their quotes. I had their own words. I, I could get into their heads because they, they put that on the page. Um, so, so that was vital to me. And I found a lot at um, the National Archives, as I had mentioned. Um, one of my other favorite places was the New York Public Library where Elizabeth's papers were held, Elizabeth Family's papers. And her, she kept a diary, um, and it was uh, an intermittent diary, and it was full of chicken scratch. You know, her, you know, her handwriting was really erratic. Um, but I found in her papers one of the death threats she received. And it was in, done in like red pencil, 
and it said, Old maid, your house will be on fire. Please give us some of your blood to write with. And it was signed with a, um, a skull and crossbones. And it was really chilling just to sit there in the library, you know, 150 years later reading this. And I, I just couldn't imagine how terrified Elizabeth might have been, must have been, to hold that in her hands and, and receive that as the war was going on. Um, so it's just those little, um, little connections um, that you, you, you get that are visceral to, your, you know, to making your characters come alive. Um, and, uh, and one more story about research, and then I'll, I'll stop with that. But um, Mary Jane Bowser, Elizabeth's uh, spy in the Confederate White House, um, always asked why she wasn't the fifth spy. You know, why wasn't she the fifth woman? And the answer to that is that there, there wasn't the primary source material for her. Um, I, I had to, I scraped and I scrapped and scrounged for every bit of information I had on her, um, but there wasn't enough there and I had to, I had to tell her story through Elizabeth because I, I couldn't do it first person with her or, or from her point of view. Um, but the rumor was that Mary Jane Bowser actually kept a diary of her time in the Confederate White House. Um, and one of her descendants in the 1940s or 50s, not realizing what it was, accidentally threw it out. <laughs> Which I was, you know, it's just the stake in the heart of every everyone who cares about history that that's that's gone. Um, but anyway, that that's uh, that was one of my his, my research heartbreaks. So. This audience member asks if there was any material Abbott would have liked to include it in her book, but was unable to because she couldn't corroborate the story. It's, it was a real challenge, especially with the Civil War, because there's such a tradition of self-mythologizing with the Civil War, people embellishing their memoirs, people making shit up, and, uh, you know, um, and just, and, but to me, what, what people lie about or what they omit is just as interesting and pertinent as what, they, what really happened. Um, so I, I tried my best to corroborate whatever I put in there, and if there was a discrepancy, I either dealt with it in the text or in the end notes, if there were a couple of different versions of a story. And just to give you one example of that, um, Emma Edmonds um, says that she was on the battlefield at Antietam and came across a soldier who was dying under a tree. And she went over to help the soldier, and the soldier, upon closer inspection, um, appeared to be a woman. And they looked at each other and recognized that each other, you know, each other had that secret. And the woman said, please don't tell anybody, um, but just help me have a decent burial. And Emma, you know, says she did that. Now, Emma's regiment was not on the field at Antietam. So to me, I was like, I'm going to put this in there, but I'm going to, I'm going to make it clear she was, this is a lie. Um, but to me, you know, that's really said something about Emma's psyche at the time. Uh, clearly, it was a reflection of the own loneliness that she was feeling and the fear that she had that, that she would, you know, a, a similar fate would befall her and she would be dying alone um, as a woman under a tree with nobody to give her a proper dignified burial. So I think it was something she was writing just for herself and that said a lot. Our next question is what was Abbott's experience like at the National Archive while doing her research? And as a follow-up, how was she able to find the descendants of some of the characters in her book? At the National Archives, I've, I've only been there a couple times because it's such a labyrinth of craziness that uh, there's somebody there who is much, <laughs> I have somebody who, who does a, some of that for me, but I went there just because I wanted to see Rose's papers. Um, and, you know, it's very tedious. You have to request things at a certain time. They only bring them out during a certain time. They might give you just one, a couple folders at a time. So it's just like, like a mouse getting crumbs, you know, just, 
Um, but it, I was shocking to me that I opened this folder and the scrap of silk was literally just sitting there. It wasn't covered. It wasn't protected. It was just in there with a notation as to what it was. Um, and, and I just remember holding it and being like, oh my God, I'm going to be kicked out of here. Um, but, but fortunately I was not. Um, but, but yeah, that was one place where yeah, that was mostly focusing on, um, also Emma Edmonds had papers there, uh, her, her service papers, her discharge papers, um, her filing for pension, her pension file, that kind of thing was there too. Um, so, so that was, you know, worth, worth the trip. Um, and as for Elizabeth's, uh, or John Van Lue's great, you know, descendant, uh, he left an Amazon review of another Civil War related book and said that he was this descendant. So, and his contact information was on his Amazon page. So I was like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna chat with this fellow. Um, and he was very forthcoming and was excited that, um, that Elizabeth was gonna get a longer and deeper treatment um, because obviously he was very proud of his, of his family's connection and to the war. Um, and uh, really had a lot of background about um, the family and how unorthodox they were and, and really how, um, how they struggled in terms of, they lived in Richmond where you, if, in order for you to be professionally and socially accepted and successful in Richmond, you had to own slaves, even if you didn't, even if you didn't believe in slavery. And, and her parents were both from the North um, and, yet, and yet owned slaves. Um, and, uh, and, and you can see why she immediately sort of dismantled that whole thing as the, the second she got a chance. So he talked with me a lot about that and um, about her, you know, her, her later life was sort of tragic. Uh, and so we talked about that too. This audience member asks Abbott how she thinks these stories of Civil War women fit into the larger story of the women's rights movement. I don't know, it's a great question. I think that the Civil War was pivotal in advancing women's rights. Now, if you think about it, um, you know, all the men went off to war. This was the first time women didn't have chaperones. They didn't have their brothers, their cousins, their uncles, their fathers hovering around whenever they wanted to go somewhere. Um, they had to run the family businesses because the men were gone. In the South, they had to pick up the plantation work. Um, and it was sort of a, a newfound, uh, unprecedented freedom for these women. And um, and they took advantage of it. You know, it was sort of like Civil War girls gone wild. Um, there was some, some craziness going on. And, and even after the war, you know, I think it was 60,000 women in the South were left widows. And um, even greater number, um, their men came home either uh, mentally, uh, mentally disabled or physically disabled. Um, and the women had to continue to be the breadwinners and, and find a way to keep the family together. Um, and I think that that uh, sort of definitely started the, the push to women, more women's autonomy, uh, eventual suffrage battle. And Elizabeth Van Loo was really on the forefront of that. Um, she would pay her taxes every year, but she would include a note that said, I should not be paying taxes. Um, I don't even have the right to vote. Um, so, so sort of a hero in, in my eyes. But, but yeah, I think the Civil War was pivotal for, for women advancing, definitely. This question asker wonders what Abbott's approach is to writing. Does she keep to a strict schedule or formula? Depends on where I am. It, you know, once once you get going, it's it's pretty it's good. And the, I'm a night owl, which I try my hardest not to be. But I I could you know my best working hours might be from like ten to midnight. 
um, which is just terrible, especially if you insom have insomnia like I do. It's just not recommended. Um, but but uh, once, you know, they're treat scenes. This is how I get through, um, you know, there are scenes where you're like, I can't wait to write this. Um, and usually for me, it's like involves some sort of treachery or murder or some sort of mishap. Um, and that it's the, th the, the things that get you through all of the other parts. So you just write these and then you start connecting them. Um, it was hard to write this book because it was four different protagonists and I had to find where the connections were, you know, and fortunately I think their stories wove together pretty well. They, one woman's behavior was always affecting another woman's circumstance um, or else they were meeting the same people. So there was cause and effect there, but I, I didn't want to miss any of those connections. So at some point I printed out this entire manuscript and it was not short manuscript um, and spread it all over my apartment floor. Now I live in New York City in a 600 square foot apartment. So you can imagine how pleased my husband was when he came home and couldn't walk anywhere. <laughs> yeah, he's just like, what am I, what am I doing? Um, so so that, was, that was a big part. But I think it, overall the whole, the whole thing took me about five years to research and write. Our next question is what was Abbott's inspiration for writing her 2008 book, Sin in the Second City, which focuses on America's most famous bordello and its role in a turn-of-the-century culture war. I should say that I was, I was not at all interested in history. Like, I never was into history. Um, I didn't have anything against it in particular. I just wasn't interested. Um, I was a journalist in Philadelphia and quite content doing that. And then my grandmother, though, told me a story. My grandmother, who is now 97, uh, told me a story about her mother and her mother's sister who emigrated from Slovenia in 1905. And my great-grandmother's sister, one weekend, took a trip to Chicago and was never heard from again. So I was always really intrigued and haunted by this bit of family lore. And I began looking into what was going on in Chicago in 1905. And I, you know, not expecting to find out what happened to my ancestor, but just wanted to see what the circumstances were. Um, and I found a newspaper clipping about Marshall Field Jr., the department store mogul, his son, um, got shot. And I thought, well, that's interesting. And then I read further and it said, Marshall Field Jr. was reportedly shot in the Everlay Club, which was the world's most famous brothel catering to dignitaries, the place where drinking from a lady's slipper became, you know, a trend. Um, the place that popularized the, the phrase to get laid. You know, people would say, I'm going to get Everlaid. Um, and I was, I immediately forgot all about my missing ancestor <laughs> and was much more interested in, in these two uh, sisters, Minna and Ada Everlay, who opened up this club and the sort of national culture war that erupted trying to shut them down. Um, and uh, so that's, that's when I got into history. And then I was like, this, this is good. You know, like it, it was really true that you couldn't make, you know, some much more interesting than fiction in some ways and, and you just couldn't make it up. Another audience member wonders if Abbott adjusts her discussion of liar, temptress, soldier, spy when presenting in states in the South versus the North. If I, if I do anything in the South, if I go to a certain city where there was um, a lot of war activity, I might find an interesting anecdote from, you know, from what happened there and just share it with them. Um, but as for uh, the tenor of my talk, no. Um, you know, and it's, it's interesting, I, you know, some people ask me, have even criticized me saying, you, you gave equal weight to the Southern women. And to me, I'm like, well, let's be clear that I'm happy the North won. I, I did not approve of slavery, 
but I, I don't think it's my place as a narrative storyteller to uh, put my current you know, viewpoint, my northern uh, you know, 21st century viewpoint into a book about the Civil War. I'm not writing an academic treatise. I'm not uh, you know, writing a thesis about it. I'm, not, I'm really just telling a story. And with, with history like this, you really have to present the characters with warts and all. Um, in fact, I, I made Rose Greenhow, I think, I put all of her ugliness in there so people could judge for themselves and see what, you know, what these people really think in, the, in this context, in, the, in that time. And um, so I, in the warts and all of all of them, I wanted to present them as fully uh, formed, flawed humans um, and then let the reader draw their own conclusions. I, I didn't want my position to be in there at all. Our last question of the night is what Karen Abbott is working on next. I just sold it actually, so um, I haven't started working on it yet. That, that'll come like many years later, but no, um, procrastinations. But uh, it's, a, it's a story of a true story of a uh, 1920s bootlegger uh, before Al Capone. He was the, the most successful bootlegger in American history. He was reportedly the inspiration for Jay Gatsby and the great Gatsby. Um, and uh, this female district attorney who pursued him, this 32-year-old woman who just sort of went after him. Um, and uh, there's a love triangle and a murder and some sensational stuff that falls from there. So, yeah, just, uh, just starting to think about that now. So, well, thank you all. I think, you know, um, thank you for coming and for the smart questions. It's always fun when, when the audience asks really insightful and challenging questions. So. Thank you. That wraps up our Roseville Public Library event with Karen Abbott in Ramsey County. Make sure to catch our next Club Book event with Christina Baker-Klein at 7 p.m. Tuesday, March 8th at Scott County's Prior Lake Library. Novelist Christina Baker-Klein is best known by many as the author behind Orphan Train, a runaway hit that reached number one on the New York Times bestseller list and continues to chart well on trade paperback bestseller lists nearly two years after its debut. Meet Christina Baker-Klein, get your questions answered and books signed. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. We also have photos of previous discussions from this season and past seasons on our Club Book Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, Find us using the handle ClubBookMN. And if you enjoy these free Clubbook events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just may too. Thanks again to all those who make Clubbook possible, including MELSA, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include Minnesota Public Radio, MinPost, Around Town Agency, and Common Good Books, where you can purchase all the books featured in Clubbook. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.